How many of you wear glasses or contacts? You have vision correction, okay. Look at that. That's a good three-fourths or more of the congregation. How many of you are basically 20-20, you don't wear glasses or contacts? Raise your hand. Okay, we dislike you very much, okay, all you people. Actually, we like you a lot. We're just jealous, all right? I would love to not have to wear glasses, but hey, such is life. And if that's my worst problem, it's not that bad, right? But I started wearing glasses when I was in high school. I was playing on a school tennis team and I was becoming increasingly frustrated because I wasn't getting to different shots and I was missing different shots. And I really didn't know what was wrong with me till the day in practice it dawned on me, I wasn't seeing the ball. And I went and got glasses and my tennis game improved, bam, like that. I could also see cars in the road. That <laughs> I had just gotten my license and so my driving improved tremendously once I could see signs and cars. And so it helped a lot to get glasses. Um, it was literally the week I turned 40 that I got trifocals. And so then, yes, they are a gift from God, aren't they? So then it was reading, computer, and far away, right? Uh, and I was, I was thankful for that. Um, being able to see is really a gift. It's, it's a good thing, isn't it? Um, let me see. I'll show you. Even with glasses, this is a penny. Probably can't see it. It's a penny. But this is so sad. I've, I've gotten to the place where I can no longer read the date on a penny. How many of you are in that club? How many of you are in that club? Isn't it sad, scary? It was like, what in the world? See, I know there's a date there and I see the numbers, but it doesn't matter how much I turn it or look at it. I don't know. I have no idea what that, that date is because it, it just it's too fuzzy. I, I don't have the... Um, the vision I need, right? You know what? Um, in life, vision or perceptivity isn't always literal when we talk about it. It's not always about like what we actually see, but sometimes it's, it's more figurative when we talk about perceptivity or vision as far as understanding things, understanding concepts, understanding people. And so maybe you're like me. There's a lot of things in life I don't perceive real well. I don't understand real well. I, I was saying like an example for me is like theology. In theology, there's a lot about God I really don't get. I believe it's true. I believe it's right, but I, I really don't understand. A good example is like Orthodox historic Christianity believes in the Holy Trinity, right? And one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So one God only one God, but three distinct persons, yet all equal to each other. And it's like, what? You know, I, I mean, I believe it and I understand it a little bit, but my perception of that, I, I, I can't fully explain that or understand that, but I believe it's true and so on. Obviously, I'm, I'm okay with that because there's a, if I understood God perfectly, if I had a completely clear vision of God, he wouldn't be a very impressive God, right? I can't do algebra. And so if I, you know, if, if I could have God figured out but not do algebra, then, then algebra is more impressive than God, right? So I'm glad I don't understand God. I, I, I don't have a problem with that. But there's things in life where my perception is not where I wished that it was. Here's what we're doing this morning. We're going to open the word of God and we're going to see the fact that sometimes our spiritual perception isn't as clear as what it needs to be. 
and that God is patient with us and God brings us along in our understanding of spiritual things. And so today what we're doing is we're concluding our series in the Gospel of Mark. We've been in Mark for quite a few months now and we're wrapping it up here and uh, we'll probably resume it in the fall, in September. Maybe we'll wait until January, the first of the year. I anticipate we'll get back to it eventually, but we're gonna take a break here in the summertime, okay? But the passage of scripture that we're looking at in Mark today as we wrap up this series is the pivotal place in the gospel of Mark. The, the first half of the book, this concludes the first half of the book. And the first half of Mark is all about Christ doing a lot of things, meeting a lot of people, performing a lot of miraculous works. It turns a corner here, and the second half of the book is all about Christ rushing headlong towards suffering, towards humiliation, towards death on the cross. And so the tone, the flavor of the book changes tremendously from here on out. But the passage we're looking at today is the pivot point. It's the turning point that makes the transition from the first half of Mark to the second half of Mark. And so we're going to take a look at that. And uh, this section that we're looking at today begins with an odd little story, a weird little story that only Mark is the only gospel writer that talks about it, that mentions it. So before we read that together, let's uh, pray, all right? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you alone are the true and living God. And we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, through whom we find forgiveness and salvation. And Father, we ask this morning that you would be with us and that as your Holy Spirit is our teacher, that you would help us to increase our spiritual perceptivity. Father, that our vision of who Jesus is would become less fuzzy, that we would understand more who he is and what he's about and what he wants from us. And so Father, give us open and teachable hearts. We want to commit this time to you as we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Mark 8, beginning at verse 22. When they arrived at Bethsaida, some people brought a blind man to Jesus and they begged him to touch the man and to heal him. Now, parenthetically, let me say that Bethsaida is the town near which Jesus performed the feeding of the 5,000. Um, it was a huge miracle, right? And undoubtedly, Everybody was aware of it. And so this is the town nearest where the feeding of the 5,000 took place. The other interesting thing about Bethsaida, this is the hometown of Philip and uh, Andrew and Peter. So three of Jesus' 12 disciples, this is their hometown. So this is familiar turf. And so when they hit the scene, people recognized him right away, right? And they already had a lot of connections. And so they immediately began bringing people to Jesus. Verse 23, um, Jesus took the blind man by the hand, led him out of the village. Then spitting on the man's eyes, he laid his hands on him and asked, can you see anything now? The man looked around. Yes, he said, I see people, but I can't see them very clearly. They look like trees walking around. Obviously, we know from this, this guy was not born blind, all right? He knew what trees look like. He knew what people look like. And so obviously later in life, he had some kind of accident. He had some kind of disease, robbed him of his eyesight, but he wasn't always blind because he saw these things. He understood these things. And so then Jesus placed his hands on the man's eyes again, and his eyes were opened. His sight was completely restored and he could see everything clearly. Jesus sent him away saying, don't go back into the village on your way home. 
So what makes this story weird? What's odd about this little miracle? Why in the world did it take Jesus two tries? Right? What is that about? Did Jesus not get enough sleep the night before? Right? Was he distracted? Did he just not have his miracle mojo working that day or what? I mean, every other miracle, bam! It was instantaneous. It was complete. But this one, he, he comes up to the guy after, after spitting on his eyes and laying hands on him saying, how, how, did that work? Are, are you okay? Can you see anything? He never asked that of anybody else. He never said, hey, are you hearing pretty good now? How are your legs working? I mean, it was obvious, right? And so he lays hands on him again, and then the miracle fully occurs. But there's that intermediate step where the guy's like, uh, yeah, man, this is awesome. I got my eyesight. I'm perceiving things, but people look like trees. They're all fuzzy and stuff. And so Jesus then finishes the job. So the question that's laid before us is what in the world is that all about? Here's what I want to suggest to you. I want to suggest to you that Jesus purposely did this two-part miracle to serve as an analogy, as an object lesson for his disciples' lack of spiritual perceptivity. They were growing. They were not nearly as blind as what they used to be. They were at the point spiritually where they were seeing fuzzy trees walking around, but they still had a way to go. They had to increase their spiritual understanding. And so by healing this guy in a two-step process like this, it served as an object lesson how you can see, but sometimes you're not really seeing clear enough and you've still got a ways to go. And it's clear how Mark put this story into his gospel that that's what this miracle is about. I'm convinced of it. Um, in verses 22 through 26 that we just read, uh, there's no less than nine terms related to seeing and sight. So in that short little passage, there's nine different phrases referring to seeing or sight. And so it's an obvious emphasis to the story, right? And Mark is the only one who includes this story of the gospel writers. And where he inserts it is important because just prior to this story, Pastor Chris taught last week, right? And Pastor Chris dealt with this passage of scripture where Jesus was hammering his disciples for their lack of understanding. For instance, he said to them in verse 17 and 18, don't you know or understand even yet? Are your hearts too hard to take it in? You have eyes, can't you see? You have ears, can't you hear? They had perceptivity problems, right? And then in verse 21, he says, don't you understand yet? And so Christ was frustrated with their lack of progress and for their hard hearts that wasn't taking in what they should. They weren't where they needed to be. They were like guys who could see, yes, but they were seeing trees walking around. Everything was still kind of fuzzy. And so that blind man's answer to Jesus' question, can you see, was analogous of the disciples' spiritual condition in their growing awareness of Christ, but they had more to still understand. That would explain. It's not that this was a particularly tough type of blindness or that Jesus wasn't feeling well that day. It was intentional because it was to serve as an object lesson, okay? And so now what we're gonna see as we go on, the story is sandwiched between the rebukes that he gives the disciples and now the continuing short-sightedness of his followers. And 
you're gonna be able to relate because the same things that they needed spiritual perceptivity with are the things that most of us need as well today. And so they needed spiritual perceptivity, first of all, regarding his identity and answering the question, who is he? Who is Jesus? So picking it up in verse 27. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. And as they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say I am? What's the word on the street? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. It was no small thing that the general population was recognizing Jesus as a prophet. They had gone through a long period of time where they hadn't heard a prophetic word from God, and they were beginning to wonder if a prophet would ever come. And I think to a great extent, their hope had begun to fade away because it had been so long since they had heard an authoritative word from God. It reminds me very similar to like Cubs fans a few years ago before they won the World Series, okay? We all lived in this fear we would never live to see the day, right? And that was the Jewish population at this time. They feared they would never live to see the day when God would bring a prophet to bring his word to them. And so the fact that the people were recognizing Jesus as a prophet was significant. And the common thinking in that day was, the common thought was, they expected one of the major prophets, one of the big wigs from the Old Testament, to resurrect and come back. And so they thought, oh, maybe this guy here, Jesus, maybe he's Jeremiah, raised from the dead, or Isaiah, or Elijah, or one of those guys. And so that was common thinking. Some even thought he was John the Baptist, who was just recently executed, and maybe, maybe he's come back. And so it's a big deal. They recognized him as a prophet, but that was an incomplete vision of who Jesus was because he was, of course, much more than a prophet. And so Jesus turns the question on them. He says, first of all, what's the word on the street? But then he turns it to them, making it very personal, puts them on the spot and says, yeah, I don't care what everybody else is saying. I don't care what the person sitting next to you is saying. I don't care what your next door neighbor is saying. I want to hear from you. Who do you say I am? And Peter's response was, you are the Messiah. Now, the Messiah was a Hebrew term. The Greek term was Christ, Hebrew. Uh, so Hebrew Messiah, Greek Christ. Uh, he said, you're the Messiah. You're the, and the exact translation, the exact meaning of those phrases, Christ or Messiah, means the anointed one. The anointed one. And it was commonly understood that the anointed one was a king that kings were anointed when they took the throne. And so they were, Peter was saying, hey, we recognize you're the king. You're the one we've been waiting for. You're the king we want. Good answer. And yet Jesus tells them, okay, but don't tell anybody. Don't spread that. And you're like, what, why, why not? Well, I wanna to suggest to you the reason why is because Jesus understood that they recognized him as the Messiah, but the wrong type of Messiah. That they saw him, he was the Messiah, but he was fuzzy, like a tree walking around. They didn't have a clear vision of the type of Messiah he was to be. And so Jesus didn't want them going out, spreading this false view of what it meant for him to be the Messiah. And you see, the thing was, in this day, the common cultural view for the first century Jew was that 
the Messiah, the Christ, would be a military leader, would be a political leader. Because you see, they were under Roman oppression. The Romans were occupying the land militarily, putting heavy taxes on them, all up in their business. You know, and, and so the Jews believed when the Messiah comes, he's going to remove the yoke of Roman oppression off our backs. And he's going to do it politically. He's going to do it militarily. He's going to kick their butt and we're going to be free and it's going to be all good. That's what they thought of when they said the word Messiah. That's what they were expecting. And what's happening here is Jesus is saying, okay, you got me. I'm the Messiah, but I'm not the kind of Messiah you think that I am. And so let's read on. Verse 31. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man, and that was him referring to his, himself, that was Christ's favorite way to refer to himself. Fourteen times in the Gospel of Mark, the phrase Son of Man is used. It comes from Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel 7, there is a prophetic vision of the Messiah. And in Daniel 7, the Messiah is a man of great authority who secures the obedience of others, who demands the obedience of others. And so that phrase probably would have been recognized as a reference to the Messiah from Daniel 7. So it says, Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man, speaking of himself, must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around, looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan, he said. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. And so the second area where we need to increase our spiritual perceptivity is regarding his mission. Answering the question, why did Jesus come? Was it to be a military leader, a political leader, to get Rome off our backs? Is that what he was about? And so they would have been comfortable with the Messiah as liberating king or conquering king, okay? But suffering king, servant king, Jesus, you got it wrong. Jesus, you're mixed up. Jesus, what are you saying? That's not the way it's going to work. And what's interesting is that word reprimand, Peter reprimanded Jesus. That's the exact same word that's used when Jesus dealt with demons. When Jesus performed exorcisms, it would said that he reprimanded the demons. Now, Peter is doing that to Jesus. And folks, this is an intense clash between Peter and Jesus, all right? The audacity of Peter to call Jesus out and tell him, hey, you're wrong. You can't be a suffering servant. You can't be a, a, a servant, who, a king who, um, who, who lets himself be crucified. You've got to kick Roman tail. You've got to do what it takes to free us. That's not the way. That can't possibly be the way. Jesus turns around on him. And it says, Jesus then reprimanded Peter. And, and it's interesting because the passage of scripture says that Jesus looked at the disciples and then reprimanded Peter. And I want to suggest to you, the reason why he did that is because the reprimand was meant for all of them. Even though he was engaged in a conversation with Peter, it applied to all the disciples. And he said, get behind me, Satan. You're viewing me from a human point of view. You don't understand what my mission is why I've come. And he gives him that stern rebuke. 
Viewing Jesus from a human point of view was the problem. Why they didn't have a full understanding. They adopted the predominant prevailing cultural view of the Messiah and tried imposing it upon him. And Jesus said, you can't define me. I'm not who you say I am. I am who I am. And you've got to listen to the word of God and you've got to listen to me and you've got to accept me on my terms and understand what my mission is. So you may say, Dave, is there a current version of us imposing our cultural values on Jesus? Oh, you better believe it in a number of different ways. Can I tell you what I think is the primary way? It's when we as Americans treat Jesus, I call it genie Jesus or American dream Jesus, where we bring Jesus into our life. Why? Because he'll give us a better marriage, because he'll make sure we have a nice house, because he'll make sure our career goes well, because he'll make sure we don't get sick. He'll make sure we have enough money to pay our bills. We'll have the American dream once we connect Jesus in the equation of our life. He's like a genie. All we got to do is go to the church, put a little money in the offering, and then you ask him stuff and he gives you stuff. It's awesome, right? It's genie Jesus. It's American dream Jesus. And we've taken that mindset and superimposed it upon Christianity, superimposed it upon Jesus. And Jesus would say, don't tell anybody. And the reason why he would say that is because you're wrong. (laughs) That's not who I am. That's not why I've come. I've never promised you those things. And I'll tell you what's so devastating is this, is we've taken this very American brand of Christianity and we've exported it all over the world with disastrous results. A couple of years ago when Karen and I went to Mozambique, one of the poorest countries in the entire world, and, and there are preachers there from America and other countries who are importing this wealth and prosperity gospel. Well, imagine this, going into African villages where they have almost nothing and villagers where, where they're in situations where if they have one meal a day, they're, they're thankful. And All of a sudden, you have somebody coming in and saying, well, hey, if you really loved God, you'd have three meals a day. If God really loved you, you'd live in a nicer place and you'd have more clothes. And you'd, what does that do? What does that teach them about God and the love of God and the availability of God? That's devastating, isn't it? And the only people who are valued are those who are wealthy, those who have money. So unbiblical. I want to encourage you to reject that thinking because Jesus says right here, I'm telling you why I came. And the reason why I came was to be humiliated, to experience all kinds of horrible things, to be rejected and to be nailed to a cross, to bleed and die. He said, I'm going to liberate you, but my liberation isn't going to come through strength and power. It's going to come through a sacrifice. It's going to come through my death, that the eternal life, the forgiveness that you need is going to come through my humbling myself, submitting myself to human power and allowing myself to be nailed to a cross. That suffering was absolutely necessary and it was the means of deliverance. And that's why when Jesus died on the cross, he said, it is finished. He said, it is finished. The mission was accomplished. That was why he came, was to be nailed to that cross. And so understand why Jesus came. Wasn't to keep you free of any scary diseases. It wasn't to make sure you have a full-time job or you have a nice family. 
If you get those things, icing on the cake, right? Cherry on top. Thank you, Lord. Gifts from him, for sure. But a person's health, a person's wealth, is in no way indicative of the love of God for them or in turn their love for him. It's just not true. Did I rant long enough on that? I think I did. I could go longer, trust me. I hate that. I hate that. I'll tell you what. There's not many people I'd call out by name. There's not many movements or teachings that like make me get hot and sweaty. I'm hot and sweaty right now. But when I think about that, it just infuriates me. It is such a lie. It's unbelievable. Okay. Stop ranting, Dave. Okay, stop ranting. Let's go. Okay. Last thing. We got to increase our spiritual perceptivity regarding his call in our life. And it's answering the question, what does he want from me? What does he want from me? Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm growing in my understanding of who he is. He's the son of God. He's the Messiah, the suffering servant, the suffering king, the servant king. I'm getting that. Why did he come? Yeah, he came to die, to suffer in my place. His death is a substitutionary death. Yeah, I'm getting that. But now the question is, okay, so what? So what? Okay, I think I understand those things, but now what does he want from me? Well, let's finish it up. Mark 8, starting at verse 34. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he said, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. In short, what Jesus is telling them is, I want your life. I don't want just your appreciation. I don't want your admiration. What I want is your life. To be a follower means to observe, to pay attention to, and then mimic, and then imitate. He said, learn my ways. See how I treat people. See how I prioritize God. And then that's what I want you to do. He said, if anyone wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way, exchange your life for his life, and take up your cross. Now, that phrase, take up your cross, that would have been like a shocking metaphor to them. You and I can roll right off our back, but you know what would be the even closest equivalent we would have is if Jesus were here today and he were to say, I want you, in order to follow me, to sit down in the electric chair. Or I want you to strap yourself down in a gurney and take a lethal injection. Okay, that's the closest we could come. But see, uh, uh, then crucifixion was a, was a common form of capital punishment. The Romans perfected it to a fine art. And there's stories how the famous Roman roads that led throughout all the territories, there were some days where they'd be lined with cross after cross after cross of men hanging and dying a torturous death. And it was common that everybody knew it, that if a man was condemned to die, the tradition was he had to carry his own cross to the place of crucifixion. And so first, after the trial, they would parade him through the streets, through the public square, be humiliated, completely humiliated. The person would be naked, completely stripped of everything, and then taken outside of town and then nailed to the cross or alongside the road. And so they understood that when Jesus said, take up your cross, the only person who takes up their cross is somebody who's condemned to die. 
Diedrich Bonhoeffer was a Lutheran pastor during World War II in Germany. And he stood against the Nazis and took a public stand against them. And eventually he was martyred. Just days before Hitler committed suicide, Bonhoeffer was hung. But he wrote this. He said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It cost Bonhoeffer his very life, his literal physical life. For you and I, that may or may not be the case. The truth is most of us probably won't be called upon to give our physical life because of our faith. But what Jesus is speaking about here is the exchange of us giving away our life and receiving the life that God wants to give us. And so it's the idea of dying to self-determination, dying to self-control, dying to ego and self-centeredness, die to seeking to use God for your own agenda. And so how's your spiritual receptivity? Do you understand? Do you see people as trees? Are things fuzzy? Are you gaining a clear understanding? Often it's a process. And so if you're not there, and some of the words I'm saying you don't agree with or don't make sense, I understand. We've all been there. But some of you are further along. Wherever you're at, I want to challenge you to open up your heart to the truth of God. First of all, his identity. Who is Jesus? Understand that he's the servant king. He's the suffering savior. He's God in human flesh, the incarnate Christ. Not merely a prophet or a good man or a great teacher or a miracle worker. He's the servant king. He is the anointed one, the Messiah. Secondly, do you understand his mission? His mission's not to make you happy. It's not to keep you healthy. His mission is to die in your place. That the suffering and condemnation we deserve because of our sinful choices, he took our place. That was his mission. That was the means by which he would liberate you and I from the power of Satan and from the power of death. And then lastly, how are you doing regarding his call? Do you understand he's not looking for a token hour on Sunday mornings? He's saying, I want you to mimic me. I want you to give up your own ambitions, your own plans, your own values, and I want you to adopt mine. I want you to follow my ways and live your life for me. And in that you find eternal life and forgiveness and meaning and purpose and spiritual birth, and you'll find me to be the true servant king. My prayer for us as a congregation is that by the grace of God, we'd each be growing in our spiritual perceptivity and that we'd see Christ clearly. That happens because of the grace of God.